Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Annie Burke, and this is New Books and Film. In her postscript to Incomplete, The Feminist Possibilities of the Unfinished Film, out this June from the University of California Press, Juliana Bruno writes, quote, The unfinished is an open, porous, virtual matrix, a flux of becoming. And because this undone is also an undoing, it cannot be done with, unquote. Bruno is just one of many impressive and inspired contributors to this volume, which is the fifth in the University of California's Feminist Media History series and the series' first anthology. Here with me today are Incomplete's editors and two of its contributors, Alex Beeston and Stefan Solomon. Dr. Beeston is senior lecturer in English at Cardiff University and author of In and Out of Sight, Modernist Writing, and the Photographic Unseen. Dr. Solomon is senior lecturer in media studies at Macquarie University and author of William Faulkner in Hollywood, Screenwriting for the Studios. If this book were an album, I'd say it's all bangers, no skips, regardless. Thank you for joining me today, Alex and Stefan. Thanks for having us, Annie. It's so great to be here. And just to say, I, we're both thrilled to be stable mates in the feminist media histories with your wonderful book, yeah, um, Their you. Own Best Creation. <laughs> thank you. That's very kind. Um, so how did each of you come to film studies in particular? Uh, you're both professors. How did, that, can, how did that happen? I can go first if you, you know, uh, I think, I mean, it's interesting because Alex and I both came from literature, from literary studies, and Alex is indeed still uh, firmly ensconced within that field. I'm not so much, um, but I was, uh, we both had a background in English literature from when we studied at Sydney University. Um, we did our undergrad there. I think we were in honours a year apart. I'll let Alex speak for her own history, but um, but I kind of moved on from there. I did my PhD on William Faulkner, and that's where my book came from, but particularly looking at his work as a Hollywood screenwriter. Um, so from there, I kind of had one foot in each camp, looking both at literature and cinema um, and how those two intertwined through things like adaptation, uh, but also through through the history of the screenplay um, and kind of the, the, the intertwining of, of those two worlds. Um, but then I, I think I, I, I just became 
I gravitated more and more towards film, um, especially doing a postdoc at the University of Reading where I worked on Brazilian cinema. And I just um, moved more towards that field and away from literature, except for Faulkner, who's still kind of in my mind somewhere. But um, I, I kind of realized, I don't know, there was something about film that attracted me about the potential for reaching outside of the academy for um, its popularity, I suppose, as a medium, um, and generally for the kinds of opportunities it afforded me, um, especially, I mean, coming from Australia, um, this is not everyone's experience, but but finally, you know, getting to, to the UK and working in, in, in across Europe um, and seeing kind of the opportunities in, in North America as well, I thought, um, you know, there's this whole world out there, especially a festival culture that I, I just loved and, and was fascinated by all the repertory cinemas, um, and so I kind of thought, yeah, this is my home now. So um, this is this is where I am today, I guess, as well. Um, my interests are very diffuse in film studies, but uh, I think this is this is it for me. Yeah, that resonates for me a lot, especially the sense of film as a sort of gravitational force. Um, I've always been really interested in visual culture generally, and um, my PhD research was about sort of the connections between experimental modernist literature and the, you know, visual forms. Initially, I was thinking in terms of cinema, but then... um, kind of realised that a lot of the received narratives we have about how um, modernist experimentation in the literary arts is connected to the cinema were actually like quite ahistorical. And in fact, there's really interesting ways we can reformulate that relationship by thinking about how cinema is connected to photography. So across all of my career, I've been, as an academic um, and as a thinker, I've been working across these different mediums. I'm especially interested in how our disciplinary silos can kind of um, mask some of the continuities between these different forms as well and particularly I'm interested in um, artists particularly women artists who are not themselves beholden to one medium over another and who work across the different art forms whether it's the theatre film um, photography literature that kind of thing and so I find working across the mediums to be really productive but similarly uh, more and more I'm working and teaching more in film studies um, and in photography studies than in literary studies as well um, and I think partly for me I really find that film studies and especially feminist film studies is just such a cool space to be working in I mean partly it's like the nicest people in the world who are working in these fields they're just like it's a really I think a really beautiful ethos of collaboration, of shared work, and of um, not trying to compete with one another for scarce resources. But also, I think film studies as a discipline that is deeply historicist, but also like richly theoretical. And I that's the kind of, that's my jam, you know, and so I, that's why film studies, I think, works for me at the moment, too. Speaking of the nice people you get to meet in feminist film studies, um, how did you two come to meet and I mean it sounds like you were in the same program I don't know if you met there or if you just can't realize that later and how did you come to work on this project together yeah we actually I don't think we did meet when we were studying at Sydney University or or we were each very unmemorable to one another if we did, I suppose. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so we did study in the same institution as undergraduates. Um, 
but we only met actually back in 2017. So um, after each of us finished our PhD in our PhDs at separate um, universities in Sydney, um, we had a period of precarious employment, both of us, um, of several years. And during that time, uh, well, I, Stefan was working as a postdoc researcher, as he said, in at the University of Reading for a time. And in 2017, I was invited to interview for a job at Cardiff University, which is the one I, I just got and that I'm still doing. Um, and I needed at the last minute somewhere to stay, preferably somewhere cheap or free because I was extremely poor. Um, and Stefan very kindly through a mutual friend, you know, we had lots of mutual friends, even if we hadn't met before, but he was like, you can come stay in my apartment. I have a blow up mattress. It was pretty bad blow up mattress, but it was, it did the job. And so it was actually a really special thing that we connected in Reading in this little apartment. Like we lived together for a couple of weeks, both kind of did our work during the day. And then in the evenings, we'll cook dinner together and just chat. And during that time, so this is six years ago, we realized we had this really interesting coincidence of research interests. Um, so Stefan was interested then in what he eventually ended up writing about in Incomplete, um, which is durational film. So films that kind of are made over decades rather than in months or years um, and that are unfinished in the sense that they're being made and unmade again and again through reopenings um, or new closures um, across time. And I had been like interested for quite a few years, including in my initial PhD research with um, uh, unproduced screenplays and um, really as really interesting objects that are quite understudied in general, although increasingly studied um, within film studies and other disciplines but it, it struck me that there were really cool feminist possibilities with unproduced screenplays specifically um, because of how they can lay bare the sort of systemic barriers um, to women making films and so we kind of realized mm, there's something interesting here maybe we can bring these ideas together um, but we knew that we kind of couldn't figure out whether we were right about our hunch, you know, that um, unfinished films offered really wonderful resources for feminist film scholars without drawing in a whole range of film, um, other film scholars, um, filmmakers as well, to try and provide proof of concept of this across the history of the medium um, and, you know, in, in different places and well times. I think it that shared background in, in literary, literary studies um, just that we both had a sense that there was something maybe that was more at home or more um, of a tradition in literary studies, which was, you know, textual studies, editing studies, the kind of manuscript studies that a lot of uh, literary scholars and PhDs do in the archives, um, where you look at textual variations and you look at, you know, the, like, the long history of something like Whitman's Leaves of Grass or something and the changes to that um, to that long poem, or you look at the manuscripts as I did of, of Faulkner, uh, and you look at, you know, right down to the word and sentence level about, you know, the decisions that an author would make um, about a particular text and seeing those like possibilities that were, you know, that are so rich and that are so um, plentiful and, and used, used a lot in literary studies um, as something that, you know, it, it's not always um, viable or available in, in, in film studies, at least in terms, you know, you can do that work in terms of looking at screenplays but not necessarily in terms of film projects all the time. So we were wondering about how we could, um, I guess, make use of the that knowledge that we had and those experiences, I guess, especially for me of, of, of actually going to the archive, going to the, the Margaret, Margaret Herrick Library or something and, and thinking about how can we make use of all of this archival stuff 
to think about all of those films that weren't made, all the screenplays that didn't quite get there, as you know, as Alex said as well. So I, I think that shared background from outside of the discipline also probably helped too. So screenplays are a great example, but you have this wide range of contributors. So to give readers some context who maybe haven't read the book yet and are definitely going to pick up a copy after this uh, podcast ends, um, what kinds of objects did your contributors look at the range of materials that you look at to see an incomplete film? And to be clear, uh, the examples in this book range from, you know, incomplete films, like very close to being done, but missing things to films that were maybe just conceived of, just thought of and never produced in any, any way. Um, so like what kinds of objects did they look at that maybe you had never personally worked with, or you were surprised to see as a response to your, I imagine you did a call for papers or some, or sort of as you reached out to scholars, uh, came across new approaches. So I guess there's two questions is what did they look at and how did you get them to write for this book? How did you find your contributors? Um, we take a very capacious view of what an unfinished film is. Um, and so it could be, as you say, even just the glimmer of an idea, you know, so something that was broached in conversation or that was written down on a napkin or that uh, through to things that, you know, maybe got some funding but not enough funding to get through to the end. Um, maybe there's, there's you know, incomplete rushes, that kind of thing. Um, the interest, it, it is a very wide range of textual materials. And so you'll have some scholars who did extraordinary work in archives, kind of poring over financial records, um, grant applications for, you know, prospective um, projects, um, scenarios, just notes towards ideas, full screenplays, um, and as I said, rushes as well. More often than not, though, it is, I think, studying unfinished films um, takes us away from film materials that have been, you know, actually shown on screens as well. Um, and so it, it, it requires different kinds of methodologies, I suppose, to, to look into. For me personally, I, I was actually, in my chapter in the book, I write about the Black American filmmaker Kathleen Collins, who was also a writer and a, play, a playwright as well. And it was actually a really surprising research pro process for me, and I think that was mirrored in a number of our different collaborators' um, processes too, um, which is partly it was to do with the pandemic. So we were working on this project throughout COVID-19 and I had hoped to go to the archive at the Schomburg Centre um, in the New York Public Library and to go, you know, pour over all of Kathleen Collins' newly accessioned um, scripts, you know, documents, diaries, everything, but wasn't able to go. And so during the pandemic, the archivists there who are just wonderful were sort of uh, digitizing one folder at a time so you could you could request one folder per month and they would digitize and sort of send it to you so this drip feed of materials and so that changed the way I was able to take on the project I wanted to sort of reconstruct the moment at which Kathleen Collins was working on a screenplay called A Summer Diary which when she was working on it was not unfinished exactly right it was something that was still perspective and emotion she was working very very hard to try and get this film funded and to try and get it made and so I was trying to think how do we access that moment of her labor in motion in the, in the instant that it was happening before it gets foreclosed by the historical circumstances that meant that it, it ended up not being you know finalized in the in the form 
she imagined. And it actually meant that I had to um, reach out to her, you know, her collaborators, her friends, um, her daughter. I, I was able to conduct sort of oral history interviews with them over Zoom remotely to sort of try and reconstruct these working relationships, the patterns and realities of the way that um, Collins was working to get at a, a more fulsome sense of the work that was involved in this project, even if it didn't eventuate in a, in a complete film. That was a surprise to me. I haven't really done a lot of interviewing or oral history work before. A number of our collaborators do actually do that work consistently and very expertly and that that they draw on that in their chapters too um, but I think that speaks as well to the nature of unfinished projects often it requires kind of deep relationships with the subjects or the subjects descendants or friends or collaborators there's just no way to get into these these projects um, unless you're able to sort of reconstruct the relationships that they that kind of capacitated them so that's some of the ways I think we approached um, you know studying these very unconventional and, objects. Uh, Sorry, Annie, did you? Um, no, I mean, I was going to say as well, like there's, there's just so many varieties as, as you can, I'm sure you can see just from the table of context of uh, contents about, you know, what an unfinished film could be. But I think when you talk to, you know, the person in the, in the bar, um, you know, about what is an unfinished film, they're going to all have some similar probably idea of what that might be. And that's uh, a film that at least got to the shoot, shooting stage that was maybe, you know, made it to post-production that, you know, was was canned by the studio or whatever, um, or indeed, you know, an, an unproduced screenplay. But there are so many other ways to think about that, and that's that's kind of was one of the driving forces behind this. And I think I, I can't remember the precise quote, but Elena Gorfinkel in the introduction mentions the, you know, the simple, the simple fact, the, the grand, you know, important fact that the majority of film materials and films indeed are unfinished. Um, if we think about all of the potential projects, um, all of those kind of rushes that exist somewhere, all of those scripts or, or treatments or um, storyboards or whatever else it is. So how do we grapple with that idea and not trying to isolate those limit cases um, and trying to find the exceptional, uh, you know, films that everybody is aware of that were not, never made, but how can we extend out that idea? So I think in the section in part three of the book in which um, I have my chapter, um, but there are also a number uh, three other chapters, they're all kind of looking at unfinishedness as a deliberate strategy, as a way of doing work, as a possibility. Um, so as not, not, as, not just as something that connotes failure, disappointment, whatever. Um, and so in my, in my chapter, um, I was particularly looking at the work of Leslie Thornton and Lynn Hirschman Leeson, who made um, uh, serial films for, for you know, for, you know, for an umbrella term to describe both of their works. Um, Leslie Thornton's Peggy and Fred in Hell, Lynn Hirschman Leeson's Electric Diaries, um, and thinking about how those works as serial films that were completed over long periods of time episodically, um, but never kind of in a planned way necessarily, released intermittently. Um, and then released all at once in different forms, how those might also be considered unfinished in the sense that they could keep going. And even if they were completed, it's not, necess not necessarily a clear sign of uh, an end point as there is in a feature film. So thinking about unfinishedness in, in that way too, um, as other, other contributors do in, in that section. Something I really enjoy about the, the articles is that like there's this sense of because they're incomplete – I think we're going to talk, I want to talk more about the personal aspect of it for a moment. Um, 
there's a sense that because these films are incomplete that you can't like let the work speak for itself. So the authors often have to sort of meet the film halfway and speak for it and imagine things that never happened. Um, Why do you think that these personal elements, be they uh, like Alex, your story about sort of the personal experience of talking to those uh, close to the subject and your sort of the, the, epistolary romance with your archivist, whatever, um, waiting for the letter. Uh, like, why are these personal stories so prevalent in this volume about incomplete work? Mm, that's such a good question. It was something that was really notable for us as well as can, can like collaborators, I suppose, as we together tried to innovate methods to, you know, that were appropriate for our objects of study. Um, Karen Redrobe, who's one of our contributors who wrote a fabulous essay about um, the experimental animator Helen Hill, um, who tragically was, was murdered in a wave of um, violence post-Katrina and left behind a number of unfinished works. Karen said, said to us at one point, that working on this project was the end of scholarly business as usual for her. Um, And she was reflecting on the way that she actually became ensconced with Helen Hill's family um, who were in a process, an ongoing process, of course, of grieving this terrible loss um, and of kind of it, it opened up just so many delicate, sensitive questions around what we do with the works of the dead um, and how we engage with those who, for whom their, their loss is really tangible and real. Um, but also I think Karen rewrote her chapter maybe three or four times from scratch because these are movable kind of archives. These are not always formalised archives that have been accessioned in a library somewhere. They may be held in someone's childhood bedroom, literally Helen Hill's childhood bedroom was where all of her materials were and that's where Karen had to go to see them so you can see how I think partly because of how unfinished works often touch on untimely loss um, and disappointment they are very very they, they bring us very close to the the matter of people's everyday lives and to their their deep connections with one another you know and they kind of involve you in that as well and I think that we saw that as inviting a form of um, vulnerability and risk or requiring that from us as scholars that we wanted to then, you know, give space for in the book. And there are a range of different approaches to scholarly writing or perhaps non-scholarly writing in this book. Um, and we tried to encourage all of our contributors to find the right form that was proper to the kinds of strange work they were doing with these materials and that that spoke to these sort of relational contexts for our work as much as the relational context for all film labour as well, which was one of the, the driving realisations, I suppose, of what we, you know, what we found when we looked at unfinished works, how they open onto the, the lived realities of film labour and its collaborative and collective aspects as well. Um, I also think, though, um, for me, I think that unfinished works have this sort of of energy and of creative creativity that in some ways as you say you know we're sort of asked to realize them imaginatively um, intellectually to ventriloquize them in certain ways and so I think that um, there's a way in which the creative aid you know, energy of an unfinished work is sort of transferred to you as someone who is looking at a project like this, whether you're a scholar or a filmmaker or a viewer, whatever it is, it invites a form of creative labor and engagement. So I think that that also is reflected in some of the unconventional like writing that you have in this book, where we tried to find ways to 
kind of express that sense of how we felt the latency and the energy of the unfinished transferred to us as I, well. I think that's a, like um, interesting that you brought that up, Alex, as well, because I was thinking of Karen Perlman's uh, chapter on Shelley Clark and her description of the way that Clark's work is linked with hers as well. Karen is my colleague at Macquarie University and is also a filmmaker and an editor. And she describes the connection using a quote from Clark about this long, or the one long electrical cord that unites some of the energies present in Clark's work and in Karen's own work as well. Um, as, as, as that, that, that is being another kind of form of unfinishedness, like the, the Clark does have unfinished films, but Karen is also thinking more broadly in terms of the way that, um, her work as a filmmaker, um, as somebody who's interested in dance as well, particularly as a, as a, as a, um, dancer herself too, um, comes through in her own work as well. Um, that, that is another one where there's a personal connection to the project also, uh, connected to Shirley Clark through her daughter, Wendy Clark. Um, who she interviewed and has access to Shirley Clark's archives through. So there's a number number of those situations or those examples where um, there are connections to family members, like with uh, with Alex's example with Kathleen Collins. Um, Sophia Sadiq um, has a chapter on the film Shirkers, which uh, many readers might know because it was released on Netflix um, in one form. Uh, Shirkers was a film, for those who don't know, which was made in Singapore in the early 1990s. Um, and would have been one of the first uh, major Singaporean feature films, um, which was made by um, three young women um, who were involved in a film class, um, but directed by their uh, their mentor, their teacher, a um, man named Georges Cardona, who absconded with the film materials um, midway through, or at the end of the shoot indeed, and then the film was never made, was never released in its in its early form, and they never were able to recover the sound, uh, the sound reels, even though they had the footage. Um, but the, that film was remade as the documentary Shirkers that exists on Netflix and which is available to see. Um, but Sophia was the producer of that original film Shirkers and it appears herself in the documentary. Um, but her essay necessarily comes from a very personal place because of her own involvement in that project. So this is, uh, I think, a very different case to many of the other chapters where um, a filmmaker or, sorry, a, a film scholar who was a, formerly a producer has lost something, has had that experience firsthand of not being able to complete a project. Um, and so that's something I think that comes through in a very different way in Sophia's chapter, maybe to the others, but that, that personal connection, again, is, is so vital to that. Yes, and Sophie as well, like she wrote six epitaphs for an unfinished film. So it's a form of memorial and she herself has never written an essay exactly like that before. So for her, the contemplation of this early unfinished work in her life that casts a long shadow over her life really did transform her labour as a scholar too. Did your authors read each other's works? Because sometimes it does, they cite each other a lot or they sort of reference another contributor in the book. Were they reading one another's? Yes, absolutely. It was very important to us that this was a genuinely collaborative project, in part because Stefan and I, you know, we did, as I said, began, begin with a hunch, you know, a supposition that these kinds of projects could be highly usable for feminist scholars. But we really genuinely wanted to figure out if that was true, along with our various collaborators. Um, but this was actually, in, in strange ways, um, sort of enabled by the pandemic and its conditions. So we would probably not have thought to use Zoom, you know, but our contributors 
leaders were scattered across the world and during various lockdowns and that kind of thing, we were able to have work in progress sessions. So we had an early draft of the intro that every contributor read and then we discussed it and worked on it based on that. Um, uh, My essay on Kathleen Collins appears in the last section of the book, which is called Posthumous Returns. It sits along beautiful essays by Karen Redrobe and Catherine Fusco. And it was a real, truly one of the highlights of my academic work, um, my career, my life was to just sit in a Zoom room with Karen and with Catherine, two scholars that I admire so much. And we'd shared our full drafts and we gave feedback to one another, thought through the, the continuities and the discontinuities between them. It was transformative for me in the way I was thinking about my ongoing work. And for me personally as well, during the isolations and stresses of the pandemic, you know, it was a lifeline to be doing this close work. And so we did try to reflect that in the way that the chapters speak to one another and build on one another, even as they also um, they also are, are so diverse in their different approaches and their, their different I think focuses. It, I mean, well. So, some of these scholars definitely uh, knew of one another's work before this or knew one another personally as well. So that was helpful too. We didn't um, put out a CFP as such, but we tried to contact those scholars who we thought you know, were already working in this space or had uh, already thought about or written about unfinished films in different contexts, but also those that we knew might have something in the works. Um, but scholars like Elizabeth Ramirez Soto and Isabel Sugui um, had worked with one another before. Um, Elizabeth uh, has a wonderful chapter on uh, three Chilean women filmmakers who made a, or didn't make um, an unfinished an, an unfinished film in the early seventies. Um, and Isabel writes about Andean um, and Amazonian uh, women's filmmaking in uh, Peru, and they knew of each other's work. So there was there were already synergies there that were working nicely for us. Um, but certainly, we encouraged all of our contributors to mm. read across each other's work, especially because there are um, and maybe as we'll discuss later very few resources that name unfinished films or that focus on unfinished films. And so also to avoid overlap in terms of what we were arguing, what we were focusing on, the kinds of quotes, the kinds of things that we considered to be important um, to make sure that we all weren't, you know, citing the same essay over and over again, 10 times. Um, so a lot of that really helped in the process, even though we were so far apart, we never made at a conference until very late on and only a few of us then. Um, but I think we still had uh, that shared focus and understanding that came through. Also, I mean, Alex and I sent out our introduction at one point. I don't remember which, how many years into the project that was, um, a draft of the introduction to kind of show where we were heading with the project as well. Um, so hopefully that was useful to our contributors. I think it was too. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off well to move on your point Stefan, um 
there is this question of clearly a lot of different kinds of scholars are working on incomplete and unfinished work, but this is a new sort of way to group them. This is a new, this book is a new intervention into that sort of interdisciplinary approach. Early cinema is obviously one that has worked a lot with incomplete incomplete data sets, so to speak, but um, there's so much work happening on incomplete and unfinished film. I guess I I want to ask why I why it hasn't why this book hasn't been done before, um, which is not to say that um, you should sort of read the minds of imaginary scholars or hypothetical people. Um, although speculative approaches are one thing that you talk about extensively in your intro, but rather, what are sort of some of the material and intellectual barriers that have existed around studying the unfinished and the incomplete that you are trying to address? That's a great question. I mean, there are some studies that have come out in the last, well, one study that came out in 2021 called Shadow Cinema, which was edited by James Fenwick, Kieran Foster and uh, David Eldridge, who are film historians. So it was an edited collection. And another edited collection um, edited by Dan North that came out in 2008 uh, called Sights Unseen. And so there has been a little bit of work on unfinished um, projects. There's a burgeoning sort of field of unproduction studies within film history history as well um, and we definitely learn from and are grateful for those those studies um, but uh, for us I think um, there are some significant limits to the existing work on unfinished films I mean in the first instance it's just actually pretty tricky to, to study unfinished works um, at a practical level like they tend to be sort of unwieldy collocations of materials rather than it's not just one film object or you know several related film objects or whatever um, but often sprawling archives that might not be formalized into a you know official archive as well um, and requiring a kind of suppleness in the way you approach the work so I think they're time consuming and in the you know the conditions of the contemporary academy do not allow often for the kinds of deep work in archives the long-term work that it takes to study these kinds of complex materials um, but at the same time I think that um, in my view at least like one of the things that we try to address in our book is what we see as um, a certain limitation in existing work unfinished on unfinished projects which tends to use or to approach unfinished works as a way to fill in the sort of gaps that exist in our in our in our present histories of the medium our present understandings of the film object and of film labor Whereas we think that the unfinished film actually does something far more radical. As Stefan said before, you know, the, the fact is that the majority of film projects across the history of the medium and in all contexts are unfinished. And so we're interested to think through what actually happens when we take that fact seriously and, and consider how that shifts our understanding of what, what fil the film object is, what film labour looks like, who's been doing this labour, um, and, and across the world and in, in different contexts as well and so I think for us the intervention that we're trying to make here is really receiving from a tradition of feminist film studies um, which has a really rich history right of studying gap-ridden absent lost texts especially as you say in the early period so Juliana Bruno who wrote the um the postscript to our book it was a real her book um street walking on a ruined map which came out in 1992 was such a touchstone for us and I think that 
partly alongside other works that has inaugurated many decades of just fabulous feminist scholarship that gives us some, um, you know, tools to be able to approach um, unfinished films in a new way and to think not just how can unfinished films sort of fill in the existing stories we have about, you know, um, film history, which is which tends to be a masculinist history, a white-centric history and one that's focused primarily on the West. And how can we use the unfinished film to completely redraw that that picture you know so not just fill in the gaps or kind of shade it in but actually completely transform that that Um, picture yeah I I mean that's like it's very hard to to study unfinished films as Alex says but yeah to to take account of that fact um that they should be the driving force or it really should inform um a lot of what we do as film scholars if they are indeed the majority of of what exists or doesn't exist um in, in film history i think one of the things that again to like to think back to the origins of the project um when we were first conceiving of this idea it didn't necessarily um start out this way uh, in the way it finished we were also thinking more broadly could we you know have an, a volume on unfinished films that also drew in um, other kinds of concerns about global filmmaking, world filmmaking, um, that wasn't necessarily limited to a feminist approach or limited to women filmmakers. Um, it, it, it didn't work out that way, but I think what we what we discovered then, um, and especially since we tried to retain the global focus, um, was that there are so many things that are kind of taken for granted in countries with stable film archives or with you know, relatively fulsome uh, film directors with filmographies um, that when we were speaking to film scholars in other countries with, uh, you know, with archival issues or underdeveloped archives, um, that that was something that was kind of de rigueur, that films were often lost. Um, I think in 2016, there was the nitrate fire in the Brazilian film archives at the Cinemateca in Sao Paulo. Um, but even where I am and where Alex comes from in Australia, um, our film archive is so underfunded um, that, you know, there is this kind of perpetual problem and threat looming of all of this lost film uh, work of the archive as well. So thinking about what it means to consider an unfinished film history um, in somewhere like the United States or with certain directors like Orson Welles, who's the, you know, the cardinal example, um, versus somewhere like Australia or somewhere like Nigeria or somewhere else where the archive is often more kind of under threat or, um, you know, there's potential for, for greater loss all the time and it's always happening and it's always present. Um, so how do we kind of grapple with that tension as well? Well, I'm glad that you bring up Orson Welles because he's always a blast to bring up. But also, I think I wanted to dig into the part of your title about the feminist possibilities of the unfinished film. And Orson Welles is one of the sort of great examples of like the the great auteur who whose unfinished work attract our interest as a way to kind of re-examine his finished work or to understand him as an auteur. Um and you, while you mention him in the introduction, it's I think um, it's important that he doesn't get a chapter. That's not the kind of unfinished film you're thinking about because you're interested in sort of what well, you have the feminist possibilities. So what are the distinctly feminist possibilities and sort of valences of studying incomplete films? And was it always your intention to make feminism an integral part of the book or did that come later in the in the development process 
Yeah, I think um, because, um, well, I was particularly interested in the feminist possibilities of screenplays at the start, and so I think that was kind of built into the DNA of the project from the very beginning. Um, Yeah, I think for me there's probably two main things, I suppose, that I think of in terms of of obviously there's more than that, but two main um, kind of ways I think about the feminist possibilities of the unfinished film. The first thing is that unfinished films, because they reveal to us these moments in time where things have gone wrong, um, where we see barriers, systemic barriers sort of in action, or we see things fall apart. I think that there's a way in which they they show us, you know, how things like gender, race and class have conditioned who it is that is able to finish films. Um they also show us at the same time as that who it is who's wanted to make films and it becomes evident that women and other marginalised subjects have this extraordinary drive in many cases to make films against all odds. Um, and so that's one of the big things that sort of emerges from our project, I think, is this sort of um, a sort of celebration in a way of the sort of extraordinary determination that women have had over time to just that their their belief in their projects and their determination to see them through regardless of what the teleology of the project actually is you know we know how the story turns out right we know that these projects don't get finished in the way they were intended and we don't pretend like we can change that story but that also doesn't mean it's the only thing to know about it Um, and so to not let the sort of negative outcome of a project or the terrible circumstances that curtail a film star or filmmaker's life over-determine our sense of the work that they did during their lives. That's really important to us. So I think the first thing is it shows you sort of the, yeah, it shows you sort of film industries in action. It shows you how systemic forms of racism, sexism and so on actually work out. And so in that sense, there's real feminist possibilities to studying unfinished films. Um, The second thing, though, is more, I think, unexpected, which is um, something that Stefan thought a lot about in in his chapter particularly, but the way that actually there are a number of feminist um, film practitioners who have deliberately cultivated forms of unfinishedness in their work, so aesthetic you know, sort of um, valences of unfinishedness, sometimes because they're not interested in the normal ways of working, so they're not interested in being auteurs, they're interested in more um, collaborative long-term adaptive forms of filmmaking Um, and and partly because they're interested in thinking differently about the film object as well and the way it kind of is itself this unfinished thing that continues to reverberate in the minds of people who watch it um, and also can be constantly reopened and changed as well. So I think they're the two kind of main ways we think about it. The unfinished film opens up a sort of systemic sense of of film cultures and the realities of film labour in a way that's very usable for feminist film scholars, but it also shows us the ways that women practitioners in particular have reimagined the medium too. Well, I think a lot of your contributor, I want to like point out Maggie Hennefeld and Catherine Grew's essays, which I think go together in a way that I really appreciated this kind of, I mean, as someone who does scholarship like credit where it's due to the women filmmakers, I like how both of those are like, you don't need to have particularly uh, Catherine Grew's point about like um, that you lose something if you insist on recuperating all of these forms of, you know, that you can, you can recuperate the labor without recuperating the name, because if we're waiting for the name, we may never do the work 
of examining the labor of colorists in film. And, you know, uh, Maggie Hennefeld doesn't have to know everything about Leontine to develop this sort of thought about catastro- catastrophic optimism, a kind of counter to um, to Lauren Berlant's cruel optimism, this kind of like chaotic, I like sort of the chaos energy that runs through the book, I guess is what I'm saying. Because once you start, once you start like releasing yourself from sort of the cult of the full film, the cult of the, of the auteur, um, it gets kind of wild. I like that. I like that in an academic mind. Um, Anthology. I love the way you put that. That's so yeah. beautiful. Thank you, Annie. And I yeah. do want to talk about climate change. I want to talk a little bit about chaos and um, the sort of like what the incomplete film does sort of even beyond the field, because I feel like a lot of people are looking in their essays at like why, really why study the incomplete film, not just because we've studied the complete films, but that there's something even more urgent sort of underlying that project. Um, but Stefan, did you want to uh, talk more about the distinct feminist yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, kind of uh, a couple of things, a couple of things for me as well. Um, thinking about the unfinished film as a, as a, you know, object that maybe we all intuitively know what we're talking about when we say that, but actually how it expands out to something like unfinished careers as well. So I think a lot of our conversations at the beginning talked about the careers and lives of women filmmakers and where they end up. So the women filmmakers who have one feature film to their name um, and who never go on to make another film, the case of, I think someone like Julie Dash, who was quote consigned to, to, to director's jail, which is television. Um, so the, the kind of, you know, what are the, what are the forms, what are the, you know, lesser forms or what are the, signs of you know that you've made it as a as a filmmaker um and there are lots of these cases where um there are women filmmakers working in experimental forms or short forms or documentary um but the feature film remains as this kind of you know this goal um as the nepalese ultra for all filmmakers to like you have to make the feature film or the commercial feature film or the oscar-winning feature film and, and you know to know that you've made it so we were thinking about that and particularly, I was thinking about the short film as something that um, maybe you know there are a lot of uh, women filmmakers who feature in this book who made a lot of short films, but not necessarily features, um, and that kind of how that how that fits into the scheme of things as well. The, the teleology thing, I think that Alex brought up too, is important. Um, in my chapter, when I was looking at this this form of seriality that filmmakers like Lynn Hirschman Leeson and Leslie Thornton are practicing in very experimental modes. Um, it's not something that's necessarily planned, right? Like there's a lot of contingency, a lot of risk. Um, there's, you know, these are kind of underfunded projects. There's, there's not a lot of um, foresight about where they're going to end up. Um, and I was kind of thinking about this in relation to someone like Richard Linklater, who made Boyhood and, you know, with, you know, like pat on the back for finishing this 12 year film. And, it's, you know, such, such determination and it's amazing that you did it, but kind of, I don't know, like a fait accompli as well. Like in a, in a different way to how um, the filmmakers I'm looking at are kind of, you know, working on the fly with their subjects and not knowing about where they can exhibit or if their films are going to be distributed or shown. Um, now Linklater has just announced in 2019, his next film is going to be a 20 year project. So just thinking about these forms of, you know, forecasting 
the future of you know where my film is going to end, how much control I'm going to have over this project, the certainty about funding, about distribution, about backers, all of these kinds of things um, kind of gave me a different sense of what it means to be t- determined or to have a plan or to be in control um, and how those kinds of different things are um, or different kind of affects are, are, are you know attributed to male and female directors as well. So one of the sort of, I think this is probably the sort of penultimate question I have for you, um, which is really to sort of think about why we study to sort of to look even beyond what we've been saying about why to study the incomplete film, but like, what do your contributors for them? It seems like a lot of the contributors have high stakes feelings and thoughts about like what the incomplete film can show and what the world lacks by not looking at them. So I'm thinking about sort of the representation of, um, was it women, the representation of women in the popular unity movement in Chile. Um, That's, is that Dr. Ramirez Soto's essay? Uh, That's just like one example I thought of, of like that, you know, if you don't study the incomplete films, you don't get this representation of this entire sector of experience that wasn't being shown in the films that actually were able to be completed. And as I mentioned, um, Dr. Hennefeld's essay about Leontine sort of opens up this possibility of like, when you watch this film, you watch this film actress perform, it performs this, she performs a kind of way of moving through the world that maybe we need in this exact moment, a kind of recklessness. Um that I was in my head, I was attaching to climate change. I can't remember if she does that or not, but the sense of like, set it all on fire. It's already on fire. So like, why don't you just make the fire bigger um, feeling? So for you, what were some sort of discoveries or aha moments that your contributors brought to you about? Because I know that when you start the book, you have your own personal research reasons and sort of intellectual ideas of like why uh, the incomplete film is important. But what I think is so powerful about this book is that um, is these surprising arguments or heightenings of this discussion uh, where I feel like you probably you sh- I'm glad you didn't, but you could have gotten away with we study the incomplete films because no one's done it yet. No one would yell at you for that. But the book is so much more than that. And I want to hear what you what you discovered in your own work and what your contributors brought to you that sort of uh, raised the stakes. I don't know another way to say it for you. Mm. Yeah, I think I found Maggie Hennefield's um, sort of theorization of catastrophic optimism very challenging personally and, and as a scholar as well. And I suppose um, I think there are two competing impulses in this book that we don't try to resolve um, and that sort of sit alongside one another and kind of this push and pull. Um, and one is there is a recovery impulse in the project, you know. And as you say, like Elizabeth Ramirez Soto's work is, a, is an ideal case of this where she says we have not done the work to understand film in this period. And we've not done it because we've ignored the kinds of labour that these women were doing. Um, It's true of so many of the other chapters as well, but someone like Mathilde Rousseau, who's this amazing um, early career French scholar who worked with the activist uh, French-Lebanese filmmaker Jocelyn Saab in the last six years of her life, she writes this extraordinary chapter reconstructing some of the unfinished works um, from Jocelyn Saab's um, career. Um, But she points out that, you know, 
that, you know, in the 90s alone, I believe, uh, Jocelyn Saab had over 30 unfinished projects alongside those she was able to make. And she's one of the most prolific filmmakers in the region. But uh, Mathilde points out that, you know, we get such a distorted picture of what film labour is like if we only think about the finished works and we're missing so much of the conditions of that labour by ignoring them as well. But so I think there's a there's an impulse towards recovery and sort of a deep belief that actually the work women have has done has been significant and underappreciated and that the models we have for thinking about film labour and film history are not fit for purpose and we need to change them. But at the same time, you know, yes, as, as Maggie inspires us, let's blow things up. Like, you know, there's a way in which we don't want to hold too tightly to our materials. And I think... Um, for me personally, I've been trying to think through what it looks like to do a form of historicized work that is still theoretically um, not trying to hold down the past, lock it down and sort of make it mean only one thing or to to sort of, um, I, I guess, uh, to flatter myself that I am offering a completion to this past or to these works that they themselves do not confer. And so I think um, for me, um, one of the things that really moved and challenged me and that will continue to do so in my work about um, this project has been trying to find um, a way to think about the past that does not confer completion on it, um, but that also doesn't um, subsume women's work under a sort of negative rubric of failure, loss, lack, and sort of therefore deny the vitality and the richness of the labour that they did achieve, um, often in extremely difficult and unlikely circumstances as well. So just sort of hold on to this extraordinary work without sentimentalising about it, without making myself feel good in the process, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so there's this competing impulses towards recovery and destruction in a way, letting the past be the past and knowing it, it will slip through our fingers no matter what we do with it. Um, while still not sort of denying how important this work has been and, and what difference it makes to our understanding of the present as well. I think the first body chapter you have by Jane Gaines sort of does that, I think, a lot through sort of yes. speculative or counterfactual what-if questions, which I feel like is a growing um, approach method. Absolutely. Um, and... So that's another essay I wanted to flag for the for the listener. That's the first one, and I feel like you probably put it first in part because it does set up some quest, some some avenues of speculative questioning that I think runs through a lot of the a lot of the articles to follow. Absolutely, which is that, you yeah. know, when we don't know, not to say it's okay to guess, but it's productive and generative and necessary to imagine, and that mm -hmm. in, with incomplete work, that's even. Um, that's even more essential and more uh, justified than maybe uh, speculation about like what was happening on the set of Psycho or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, you could do that too, but um, but Stefan, yeah, let me let me let you step in now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was thinking. I mean, of, of a couple of chapters you mentioned as well. Um, Elizabeth Ramirez Soto's chapter. Um, and Isabel Seguiz is the chapter before that about um, she writes at least in part about the, the Bolivian producer and filmmaker Beatriz Palacios, who was married to a far better known filmmaker, Jorge Sanjines, um, both members of the Yucamal group. Um, and she writes about this. I mean, it's a really interesting kind of tension that kind of hadn't occurred to me um, about how to extract or how to elevate um, uh, a woman filmmaker like Beatriz Palacios from 
that collective group where you're saying, okay, you, you have this collective of filmmakers all trying to do something within kind of the third cinema uh, umbrella um, and they're not trying to, um, you know, to, to make a name for themselves as auteurs, right? But actually it's Jorge Sanjines who's the name who survives from that group as, you know, everyone identifies him as the, as the key filmmaker from the Yukuma group. Um, but what if you actually try to work with this, this dynamic? We don't necessarily want to fall back into the auteurist um, celebration of, you know, identifying key women filmmakers and then those are the only ones who, you know, uh, are worth celebrating or are worth um, uh, discovering their unfinished films. Um, but what do we do in these cases where we're both trying to work with um, uh, collective collectives but also with um, women who have been um, unjustifiably marginalised? I think um, Elizabeth's essay, Elizabeth Romero-Soto's essay as well, draws attention to the fact that um, it's important to consider the feminist approach. What is what is feminism to this book? Um, it's a many varied thing. Um, and, and she writes of the three filmmakers, Angelina Vazquez, Marilu Mallet, and um, uh, Valeri- Valeria Sarmiento, um, Chilean filmmakers, she says that two of them, Sarmiento was maybe a little bit more um, forthright in her attachment to feminism, um, that actually uh, Mallet and Vazquez were not did not self-identify as feminists um, in the in the way that we might expect them to. So she she understands, you know, she's trying to work through, okay, this this film Tre Portre that they made, or this this uh, this screenplay that they wrote together um, about gender, about uh, women's issues in Chile in that time um, during the early seventies. But what does that do in relation to what she calls civilizational feminism, the kind of white uh, Western imported feminism. Um, and so how does that work as well? And how does that trouble our understanding of, um, this kind of holistic approach that we're, that we're taking it as, as editors too. So it was, it was really helpful to, to kind of think through, um, the different challenges that our contributors were having through, you know, their own objects of study and in their own context too, which we might, you know, take for granted or not know about, um, fully. So that was really, um, informative for me too. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming to talk with me today. My last question and sort of our our um, final our sort of final wrap up plug for the book, which is uh, being sold at the University of California Press website, but also uh, anywhere you buy your academic books. Um, are there any events or publications in line with the book? Any research you'll be presenting, or any events you'll be doing? to publicize and complete that you would like to uh, plug now? Um, I have just come back actually from Berlin where I was doing an event called Film Undone, which is a wonderful program that was curated by Philip um, Weidman. Um, so I think The Unfinished is having a bit of a moment. And so I've done a few different things in Cardiff as well and have enjoyed uh, collaborating with Stefan and other contributors on those, the, some public programming. I, I think we're kind of guns for hire. If people would like to have us come and speak, give lectures, um, present programs, do public or academic talks about this work, I know Stefan and I would be delighted to do that as well as all of our contributors as well. I'm not sure, Stefan, do you have anything lined up I don't know about? Nothing yet. I mean, I'd, I'd love to be at SCMS next year, um, you know, once the book is you know fully out and people have read it by then. 
to to meet and and maybe to present something there if we're if we're lucky enough to be over in Boston. But otherwise, um, nothing here yet. There's a, there'll be a small book launch at my university at Macquarie, which will actually be online as well. So um, I can I don't know when the details are available for that. I can make them known. But um, we I I feel like all of our events have happened. Um, already our, our big events our big film events in cardiff and and um in berlin berlin as you said alex so i think we've had um we've we've had some good uh kind of enthusiasm already for the book before it was before it was released okay well we're going to call this conversation your victory lap but it's just the one maybe you can have multiple victory laps including next year in boston thank you so much alex and Stefan. this has been great your book is amazing everyone listening should get it uh and should get their libraries to get it too because we know that's where the money is okay so <laughs> thank um, you annie thank you you're thanks, welcome annie. uh thanks all have a great uh have a great day and to everyone listening this is new books and film With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.